Nice to see a lot of new faces today. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Isaac. I'm, I'm the other intern here at uh, Christ Community Presbyterian Church. So uh, don't use today to, to judge us too harshly. <laughs> um, our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, um, starting, um, starting from verse 1. And going down to verse 11, I will read our text for us, and then we'll pray and then get into it. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the darkness or uh, of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we want to contemplate um, you today, your truth, your words. Uh, we want to think your thoughts after you. And we ask that you would enable us to do that by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Apocalypse, Armageddon. The end of the world. You hear those phrases, and I'm sure certain things come to mind. Uh, one of the images that you may be familiar of is this uh, notion of the doomsday clock. Uh, the doomsday clock was a device conceived up in 1947, shortly after the end of World War II, at the dawn of the nuclear age and the Cold War. And... Uh, It was set at that time in 1947 to seven minutes before midnight. And this doomsday clock is actually, it's not um, arbitrarily set by some random person, but it's actually uh, set by a uh, convention, a panel of scientists who analyze all of the risks to humanity and make an adjustment accordingly every year. And the doomsday clock has oscillated back and forth over the years through the Cold War and at times, such as during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's crept closer. And at other times, it's been set backwards. In 1991, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, It was set all the way back to 17 minutes before midnight, buying us a reprieve, seemingly. But since then, in the intervening decades, new events in the world 
and also the study of climate change have caused the scientists to yet again set it only 100 seconds from midnight. And if you're like me, you consider all the clock going back and forth, and it doesn't mean anything. You know, five minutes, two minutes, 100 seconds, it doesn't seem to make a difference. It's just this sort of abstract um, idea that doesn't seem to be connected to how we actually live our lives today. But the scientists on this panel actually intend for this clock the awareness of, of the existential dangers to motivate us to live differently, to make different choices, to, to uh, think about our policies differently. And so it is with the Bible when it speaks of the end times. Because just like how we consider the doomsday clock and dismiss it as not a real danger, not a real reason to change how we live, we also similarly, when we come to passages like this, we are prone to think, well, does God really mean that? Is the world really going to end? Really? Our text today is a wake-up call, a splash of cold water on our faces that teaches us that, indeed, the day of the Lord is imminent. No matter what present circumstances look like, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yet the hope of the gospel, and the main thing I want you, brothers and sisters, to walk away from today Uh, to walk away with today, is that because God has destined us for salvation, we don't need to fear His coming judgment. Because God has destined us for salvation, we don't need to fear His coming judgment. We'll unpack this uh, in three ways, three points. First, judgment day is coming. Second, we need to be prepared for it. And third, we can take comfort in the sovereignty of God. First, judgment day is coming. Verses 1 and 2 read, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You may ask, as I did at our Wednesday night uh, Bible study, if Paul is saying here, you don't have anything... You don't need anything written to you. Why does he write all this stuff about Judgment Day? If he's already taught the Thessalonians in his time with them and and he seemingly commends them for their correct understanding of the end times, why write anything at all? Well, I think there's there's two two reasons that come to mind when I was trying to answer this question, for myself at least. First, Paul doesn't see redundancy as, as a problem. Back in chapter 1, he said this in commending the Thessalonians' faith. Uh, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So this is a pattern for Paul in the book of Thessalonians. He's commending them for what they are doing, but he also exhorts them to continue on. Again, in chapter 4, he says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So, Paul isn't displeased with the Thessalonians. On the contrary, he praises them for their faithful obedience, and he wants them to continue onwards in it. 
And just like how we raise our kids with encouragement and positive feedback, we, we believers need to be constantly reminded of God's great love for us to continually motivate us to follow Christ. So it's not a problem to repeat ourselves when we're repeating the gospel. We need that. Secondly, consider Paul's sentence here carefully. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. There is a specificity to Paul's statement here. The Thessalonians don't need to have the times and the seasons explained to them. And verse 2 explains this. He says that for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's no point for Paul to write to the Thessalonians telling them in what season and on what actual date that the Lord will return because he doesn't know. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 24, 36 says that about that day, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if Jesus can say he doesn't know when the last day is going to be, we can say safely about us that we're not going to know either. It's not necessary for our salvation and godly living. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are called to be content with our station in relation to God. Some of you may remember around 10 years ago, a man named Harold Camping uh, predicted that Judgment Day would occur on May 21st, 2011. His predictions were given media coverage and Christians around the world gathered to await that day. Some Christians, maybe not most Christians. Of course, as we know, nothing happened. And because of this, the name of Jesus was mocked by unbelievers. And this was far from an isolated event. Some of the Thessalonians themselves, as we've seen in the past couple weeks, may have quit their jobs and stopped worrying about the future because they were waiting the imminent coming of Christ. And that prompted Paul to write some of what he did in this letter. Some of the church fathers predicted that Jesus would return in 500 A.D. And as the first millennium after Christ approached, the year 1000 A.D., more predictions were made. Again, during the Reformation, as momentous historical events were occurring, many identified the Roman church with the figure of Babylon in Revelation and and concluded that Again, the world was drawing to an end. All of these predictions were unforced errors by the church, something that the Bible itself prohibits us from doing. We want to be able to read the signs of the times and determine the exact date of Judgment Day because we want to be able to exert some level of control over it, to possess something that belongs to God alone. But God is God. And we are not. In fact, Paul's point in this passage and in several other passages in his letters is that we are to live as if our Lord is going to return at any moment in time. The last days are here, and they've been upon us ever since Jesus ascended to heaven. John Chrysostom, an early church father, one of the most famous preachers of the early church age, he he wrote this in his homily about this text. 
For the simpler sort of children never cease teasing, teasing their nurses and tutors and parents with their frequent questions in which there is nothing else but, when will this be? And when that? And this comes to pass from living in indulgence and having nothing to do. Like these children and like uh, the biblical figure of Job, we're always eager for answers that we're not going to get from God. We don't trust that the Lord knows what is best for us, even when what is best for us is that we don't know something. As Christians, we are called to be content with the sufficiency of God's word and stop inquiring wherever it ceases speaking. Yet, if for some Christians the danger is unhealthy fixation on the exact timing of Judgment Day, for others, the danger is ignoring it altogether. Consider what Paul says in verse 3. While, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I think there's Paul's doing two things here. He's, he's alluding, first of all, to passages in the prophets, in Jeremiah 6.14 and Ezekiel 13.10. As many of you know, and we've been going through Ezekiel in our men's study, we've talked about this in depth there. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they prophesy, they both prophesied during the last days of the southern kingdom of Judah. And their ministry was to warn Judah that God's judgment was coming, that Jerusalem will, would fall, that they would be sent into exile because of their blatant disregard for God's law. And they were ignored. People didn't believe that God was going to do what he clearly said he was going to do through his prophets. And in Jeremiah 6, 14, it says this, that of, of these, and in fact, there were false prophets in the land that kept on saying that nothing was going to happen, that God was pleased with Judah. And of these false prophets, Jeremiah 6, 14 says this, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It is the ever the hallmark of false teachers that they tell us what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear, rather than what God has actually said. We want to believe that we are at peace with God and with one another, that the problems that we face could be fixed if we just all put our heads together and cooperated, that we can bring about an eternal golden age if we play our cards right. Uh, sociologist, a political scientist named Francis Fukuyama wrote a famous book called The End of History in the Early 90s after the end of the Cold War. His thesis was that with the defeat of the Soviet Union, hum, uh, human society had advanced to the final stage of history in the form of Western liberal democracy. For Fukuyama, the liberal democracies of the West had achieved the highest ambitions of government and culture, and were poised to prosper and lead the rest of the world with them into a new era. Wars would cease, prosperity would increase, uh, all of the human problems would be resolved. Of course, in the decades since then, we've seen that hasn't come true. Even in the West, the last decade has shown that we can't even get along with each other in our own countries, much less lead the entire world. 
Fukuyama admitted after the polarization of the 2016 elections that 25 years ago he didn't think that democracies could go backwards. And regardless of your political views, I think we can all agree that the system that was supposed to be the end of history isn't working the way it's supposed to be working. And of course, recent events this week in Ukraine have shown that war hasn't gone away either. And this is all because sin is and ever will be the central problem of the human condition, something that we can't engineer out of the world through our clever political or technological advances. The end of history is something that only God can bring about. Nor are we the first in history to believe that we have achieved it all. The Romans thought that they had ushered in a permanent golden age. One commentator has noted that Paul is actually critiquing Roman arrogance in in verse 3. See, peace and security was actually a slogan in Roman times used by various leaders to summarize the power and permanence of the Roman Empire. One ancient Roman inscription that has been discovered uh, in Syria reads like this. The Lord Marcus Flavius Bonus has ruled over us in peace and given constant peace and security to travelers and to the people. The Romans looked around at their well-paved roads, their industrious networks of trade, their powerful army, their brilliant leaders, and they thought, this is it. This can't be broken. This can't be shattered. This will last forever. Peace and security are ours. And yet, as history bears out, the Roman Empire crumbled. Its brilliance declined, its culture turned towards decadence, and in the end, it fell. And like Rome's fall, God's judgment on this world is inevitable. Notice how Paul compares it to the birth pangs of a pregnant woman. The point he's trying to make is that pregnancy does not go on forever. It has an end point. There is a date when it will end. And so does this world. This world is going to end, and we are going to appear before the throne to answer to God. And this end is not only inevitable, it's also going to occur suddenly, without warning or notice. Like many of you, I've been watching the events unfolding in Ukraine this week. It's hard for us to imagine as Americans because we're so insulated from the world in so many ways. We're surrounded by two oceans with friendly neighbors and no one powerful enough to invade or threaten us directly. Consider going to your bed to to bed tonight and then waking up in the middle of the night to the blast of artillery shells landing near your house, to air raid sirens blaring out, to gunfire and to rockets and to grenades. That's what happened to Ukrainians this week. And in the same way, when we've convinced ourselves that we have nothing to worry about, that God is impotent or unaware of what's going on in this world, He's going to return and summon all of us to appear before Him for an accounting. He's going to return, and the Scripture says here that sudden destruction will come upon them. Friend, if you are here today, or you're watching online, and you're at ease, 
You haven't considered your sin. You haven't considered your standing before God. You need to listen carefully. And I'm not telling this because I particularly want to tell you. I'm not, this is not like a gleeful thing for me. You're at war with God. And on the last day, you will be judged by God. Revelation 6.16 says that those who forsake God will cry out to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? No one can stand. Flee from the destructive path that you're on. Make peace with God by trusting in Jesus. He faces judgment day on your behalf. Don't put this off because you don't know when your allotted time is up, when you're going to be summoned to stand before God. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Jesus, know that you have nothing to fear from his return. In fact, you've already faced judgment day because Jesus was judged on your behalf. And when you put your trust in him, all of your sins were counted to him and all of his righteousness was counted to you. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Your justification is the verdict of the final judgment brought forward in time for you to take comfort in today. That's the amazing grace of God. And this leads me to my second point, that we need to be prepared for Judgment Day. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 4, But you were not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Some of you may be familiar with two grammatical categories uh, that we speak of in, when we're talking about um, the Bible the indicative, and the imperative. If you're not familiar, uh, these are two categories that Paul often uses to frame his arguments in his letters. The indicative deals with facts, reality. They describe things as they are. Imperatives are commands, things that we ought to do in light of what is already true. Why is this important? Well, it's because it describes how the gospel works. See, the gospel always proceeds with first acknowledging the indicative reality of what God has accomplished for us. His saving grace produces in us the ability to love and serve Him. It's never the other way around. We don't earn our salvation from Him in exchange for the good works that we produce. No, His love comes first, works in us, gives us the power to carry out his commands. Let's apply that framework to what Paul is saying here. For Christians, no matter what, when Jesus returns, it's not going to be a surprise. Why? Because we're not going to be asleep. Paul returns to the usage of sleep as a metaphor. If you were here last week, you recall that he uses sleep to describe uh, or to, to, um, to describe death, the temporary nature of death. But here, he is using it in a different way. He's using it to describe spiritual blindness. Left to our own, apart from the grace of God, we're blind and numb 
to the reality of God's judgment and salvation, unable to appreciate or comprehend all that is ours in Christ. If only we would take hold of him by faith. Similarly, to be spiritually drunk is to be deceived concerning what is real and what is not. And I appreciated our discussion on Wednesday night about uh, what Paul means here when he's talking about drunkenness and sobriety. He's not just talking about alcohol, although that can be certainly an obvious manifestation of an even deeper problem, a spiritual problem. See, left to our own, apart from the grace of God, we're blind and numb to the realities of God's judgment and salvation, unable to appreciate or comprehend all that is ours in Christ if we would only take hold of him by faith. People get drunk because they want to alter their perception of reality to cope or evade or hide from something that they don't want to deal with. Left on our own, we willfully choose to suppress the obvious truth that there is a God, that we are created by him, and that we must answer to him for what we do. If not for the light of the world, Jesus Christ, we would be like those of the night or of the darkness. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, Jane helpfully pointed out during our Wednesday night Bible study that to cultures that didn't have access to electricity, darkness was a fearful and daunting thing. We don't make as much of it now because we can just flip a switch. But in the ancient world, people lived their lives by the day-night cycle. So to be in the darkness is to live lives directly counter to the natural pattern that God intended for us. Thanks be to God that he has made us children of light through Jesus, the light of the world, who has entered our darkness and shone through it. He has woken us from our spiritual slumber and cut through the haze of drunken deceit that the devil had trapped us in. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. So that's the indicative. So what is the imperative? What ought we to do in response to God's love, and deliverance for us. We are called to be prepared, prepared for the day of the Lord, prepared for His return. Our preparation is manifest through a certain pattern of behavior. This behavior is characterized by two qualities, alertness and sobriety. Another way to put those words might be watchfulness and self-control. These qualities directly oppose drowsiness and drunkenness. Everything that a Christian does is to be with intent and discipline. Paul builds upon his metaphors in verse 8. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice the martial imagery that Paul uses in speaking of armor. The reason that we must be alert and disciplined is because we are engaged in a battle with Satan and his kingdom. And in order to fight, we need to have the proper equipment and the right mindset. To forego this preparation is to invite disaster. 
Now, I know that talk of spiritual warfare can seem kind of weird and kooky at times. I know it does for me. At the very least, I know that often I have difficulty understanding, okay, what it is, what am I supposed to do in order to be engaged in this fight? Uh, the Ukrainian government right now is putting out requests for foreign volunteers to travel to Ukraine and, and fight. Just get there and they'll give you weapons. And this, on the one hand, is obviously a daunting thing to consider. But on the other hand, it's remarkably simple and practical. If you want to fight, this is what you do. But in what arena does a Christian engage in warfare What tasks are we supposed to be doing in order to prepare for the Lord's day? Suppose that uh, as we build upon Paul's imagery, metaphors here, suppose that you're concerned about securing your property from home invasion, since that's what he likens the day of the Lord to. So you're worried about a thief coming in at night and burglaring your home. What are some things you might do? Well, you could... Buy a security system. You can install cameras and automatic lights. You could buy uh, a firearm. You could get a guard dog. You could put up signs or fences. You could, you could do a whole bunch of things, and, and many of these things might be reasonable and prudent. But there comes a point when you're refusing to take a vacation, you've got camo on, and you're camped out in your yard with a rifle, and night vision goggles, that preparation has become paranoia. You're so concerned about the possibility of a burglary that you've put your entire life on hold. And with regard to the day of the Lord, Christians can suffer paralysis by analysis. There's people that are moving into mountain cabins with stockpiles of food and weapons intending to ride out the last days of the tribulation from there. Is that what preparing for the apocalypse looks like? Is that what Paul is telling us to do? I'm going to test you guys a little bit here. I'm going to ask you to remember some sermons from the last month or so. (laughs) To consider what Pastor Rob has been preaching about through this whole series in Thessalonians. Consider that Paul invokes the formula of faith, hope, and love once again in his description of the Christian's armor. We've seen that Paul uses faith, hope, and love throughout 1 Thessalonians as a shorthand for the essence of the Christian life. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he commends the Thessalonians for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is faith? In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, It's turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Faith is worshiping the true God and putting our trust in his promise to deliver us from his wrath by the work of Christ. A few weeks ago, we learned what love looks like. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, Paul says this, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. How do we do that? By abstaining from sexual immorality and by loving one another. Not simply through our emotions, but practical, real service. Recall what he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 11. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands so that you may be pro- walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
And last week, we explored the topic of hope, what hope looks like, looking beyond the bleakness of death to the promise of the resurrection and eternal communion with God in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. To be prepared for the day of the Lord is to live like a Christian, as Christians have always done, putting our faith in God, loving God and loving our neighbors, and hoping in Jesus' return in the face of sorrow and loss. Paul isn't calling us to do something radically different other than the radical way that Christians are to live at all times in distinction from the world. But we are to continue in this life, to persevere in it all the way until the Lord returns without slackening, without becoming complacent, without taking God's grace to us for granted. And this leads me to my third and final point, take comfort in the sovereignty of God. Paul pivots from his focus on the believer back to God in verse 9 and 10. He says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul knows that if our destiny ultimately depends on our faithful obedience, then it's no sure thing at all. Because we do get complacent. We do lose sight of God's uh, judgment and salvation. We do get caught up with the concerns of the world. And yet, ultimately, our hope is in God's eternal love for us. That's why Paul turns back to God here. He He turns back to the source of our faith, hope, and love. The source of our faith, hope, and love is God's eternal love for us that stretches from eternity past to our present and beyond to our future, world without end. So, the greatest action of movie of all time, without a doubt, there can be no doubts, is Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Sorry, I couldn't resist judgment, Dave judgment, Uh, and maybe, (laughs) anyhow, there's a scene in the middle of the movie, Sarah Connor sitting at the wooden picnic table, and she's got this big combat knife, and she's carving words into the table, and she has this vision of the nuclear apocalypse, everything that they're trying to prevent, and she looks down at the words she's carved, no fate but what we make. And on one level, this is true. The Bible never shies away from holding us personally accountable for the sins that we commit. Human beings are going to be held accountable for what they've done, and God will do it in His perfect justice and fairness. Yet at the same time, God's sovereignty and salvation is such that He alone is the fountain of life. That even our obedience to Him is the fruit of His Spirit's regenerative work in our hearts to restore us to right relationship with Him. These twin realities, human responsibility and divine sovereignty, don't conflict with each other. It may be hard for us to to reconcile this in our minds, but the Bible affirms both. So we have to affirm both. 
Calvinism often gets this rap that it's a cold and cruel religion, that God is just moving us like a puppet master and we're just all robots doing his bidding. And I want to acknowledge that the doctrine of predestination has been abused in the past in unhelpful ways. Yet the Bible never presents this doctrine as a club to beat other people with. It's always a source of deep comfort and joy to know that God loved us even before we were born. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians, Paul says, are to encourage one another with this wonderful news that God's love for them extended from eternity past to present to future. God's love for us is not based on anything that we've done or who we are in any way. It's completely unconditional and independent of us. That's why Paul is able to say in Romans 8.38 that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, know that Jesus fixed his eyes upon you in eternity past to make you his. Walk forward in faith, hope, and love, knowing that God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you?